Welcome to Pillow Voices, a production of Jacob's Pillow Dance Festival with content from the Pillow Archives. I'm Norton Owen, the Pillow's Director of Preservation, and it's my pleasure to bring you one of our most memorable Pillow Talks from the past. This is a 2002 event that was entitled The Legacy of Catherine Dunham, recorded just a few days after Miss Dunham's 93rd birthday. The conversation was moderated by Reginald Yates, who directed a program in the school at Jacob's Pillow devoted to the Dunham legacy. And the voices you'll hear belong to Donald McHale, Cleo Parker Robinson, and Julie Belafonte, in addition to Catherine Dunham herself. Good evening. How's everyone? Uh, I want to say that everyone on this panel is a living treasure. And uh, I want to use this... <laughs> use this occasion to thank Ms. Stella, not only for her strength and uh, her legacy, but her graciousness, her generosity, and the great gifts that she gives to us each day. Uh, she is a paragon of strength, of faith, and not only are we standing on her shoulders, but she has said to us, we have a collective responsibility to express our sense of humanity every day that we live, and not just on the stage, but as we greet each other, in other words, our sense of community, because there's no separation between what you live and what you dance. And in Dunham Technique, when she says a way of life, there is expression of your humanity as you're teaching it, as you're dancing it. In Africa, we learn how to respect each other through the dance. We learn manners through the dance. We learn our lineage through the dance. And I know by taking classes in Dunham Technique, we're speaking specifically of the bloodline. We're speaking of our heritage. We're speaking of the life force, for example, in the shoulders here. As to say that if movement stops, we cannot live. If breath stops, we cannot live. It is expensive. So we have learned through Catherine Dunham that as she has lived, we can not only live, but we can be prolific human beings first, as to say the human being is before the artist. Uh, one question I want to pose to our illustrious guest this moment is, first of all, to think and to also ponder about Miss Dunham's influence, not only um, as an artist, but as a human being, because I'm very, very struck by her humanity, always, her graciousness, and her, what I call, abiding and enduring love. This love is consistent, and it really, she lives by example, and this is profound to me every time that I meet her. She is very, very consistent in that. But let us begin by talking about influences, not just and, and as, as an artist, but also as a human being. Anyone can take that. We first hear from Donald McHale, a pioneering choreographer who never worked with Miss Dunham personally, but nonetheless had strong feelings about her influence. Well, I'll start because I never worked personally with Miss Dunham. Her influence in me was by being in her presence, by uh, being witness to what she was doing, uh, witness to what she stood for. Uh, I remember very vividly, not that long ago, when she went in a hunger strike to protest 
the treatment of Haitians who were being turned back when they were trying to escape from the repression. And she was well into her years, uh, and was I think it was around 50 days or more, and we, people kept begging her, begging her, 47 days. But this was her commitment. Now, how many of us would do that? You know, she, you know, she puts she puts her life on her line on the line for what she believes in, and it's a hundred percent and more. And um, as a young man, when I first witnessed her, I was witness to this in the beauty of this woman as she danced, but also to listen to her speak. Um, she is a great human being as well as a great artist. Joining the conversation now is Cleo Parker Robinson, whose Denver-based company is itself legendary, having revived a number of Dunham works and brought Miss Dunham to Colorado for a conference of the International Association oh, wow. of Blacks in Dance. Um, oh, first of all, I mean, I could talk about Miss Dunham forever, and so if I can just uh, speak maybe of that incident. Um, at the time, Miss Dunham was uh, fasting. Um, I was very close to Miss Dunham, and, and uh, it was very shocking that she would decide to fast and... Uh, she spoke about she had no fear and no fear of death, and so she was very concerned about all of us being concerned about her. And so I thought that was really quite amazing. Uh, she stopped fasting finally after President Aristide uh, came to her, her bedside and said, the Haitian people have asked me to come and ask you to please stop fasting. And I, I think even then she was reconsidering whether or not, uh, because she really is about commitment, as, as Donnie speaks of. But my experience has been, um, I guess, growing up, knowing about Miss Dunham all my life. My father was an actor and, of course, inspired by Harry Belafonte and Sidney Poitier. And I grew up dancing, doing the calypso and looking at Donald McHale on the movies and the films and the everything. And so I always knew about Catherine Dunham, but I never, I, I always dreamt about meeting her. And I finally went to New York and, and began to study with her, but found out who she was through her goddaughter uh, there at Alvin Ailey's. And um, I mean, she was bigger than life, first of all, just, um, but... The part I did love, and I think that I've been so absolutely inspired by, is her compassion. Um, I've, we've been around Miss Dunham, and I know Alberta Rose is here, and uh, so many of her, her, I guess, we're followers, we're teachers, we, we are, <laughs> she's the guru. Um, yes, uh, Dunhamites, yes. <laughs> but we've been there in so many different circumstances in East St. Louis or in New York or in Chicago. But in East St. Louis, she is committed to the young people. And as I look over here to the left, I see a younger people who are, um, first of all, young spirits here, but younger because she, is, she came to East St. Louis um, with her husband, John Pratt. And uh, when she saw the situation there, she was totally committed to changing it, even if it meant being taken to jail or whatever she had to do. She was protesting the situation and she was, she was realizing also that the young men and the young women, uh, the, the young gangs then, uh, really needed another way of expressing themselves. They needed to know that the arts were a way of speaking and uh, the drum was critical for their own language and she began to, to really um, 
become a force there, and she still is. I mean, even when she's here in New York, and, and uh, we're so happy she's there as well, she will go back to East St. Louis and teach as she did today, because she stays committed to what's going on in Haiti, what has happened in East St. Louis. And she said, because if things can change in East St. Louis, which if most of, if any of you've been there, if you've been there, you know how difficult it is to live there. Um, uh, but if you can make something happen there, you can make it happen anywhere in the world. And that's how she felt. So she didn't pick the easiest place to make something happen. She, she challenged herself as she does challenge dances. Uh, but I have so much. Um, I, do, I do know that she exudes a, an aura about her that is so loving. When she was in Denver um, working with, uh, oh, here she is, Gabby Balambo. Yes, 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 this son myself. At this point, Catherine Dunham herself joins the conversation and is welcomed by Reginald Yates. Miss Dunham, how are you? Exceedingly well. Yes. We want to say again that we love you. Yes. We were talking about influences, and um, Cleo Parker Robinson was speaking about how you have influenced her life and uh, career. And so we perhaps want to go on and talk about that influence, too. Yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> having Miss Dunham come to Denver, I think in, it was in 1990, um, coming from Haiti um, for the, I guess, this, the third International Black Dance Conference. It was magnificent, and she transformed the space. I mean, one of the things that was performed, uh, one of the pieces is Miss Dunham's work, Lagia. And uh, she had set it on the Ailey Company, and I had seen the magic of Catherine Dunham uh, performed in New York. And it was a wonderful gift that Alvin had given the conference and to Miss Dunham uh, that April Berry would come from the Ailey Company and perform that solo. But I think what was magnificent was not every, not just what happened on stage, but what happened in the hotel when she was rehearsing with Mochiam, one of her extraordinary drummers from Senegal, and to witness the most extraordinary, well, the mind, body, spirit, seeing how holistic it is and what she believes in, how you take the mind and you put it into the power of your body and you allow the spirit come, to come through. And watching that rehearsal, I'll always remember that. And so when she tried to explain it in class the next day after the performance, which was extraordinary, April then came to the front of the room and began to demonstrate Lucky again. And there was a powerful possession that went on in the room. And my studio has never been the same. And then it got ready for Julie Belafonte and for Tommy Gomez when they came to work with us setting Choros and with Ben Benoit Aiken to set Bellhouse Blues. And so Miss Dunham's spirit has been there many, many times and in many ways. And every time she gives so much to the young people that are there, to the dancers. And she doesn't just start with the dance. 
but she takes you on a journey that is so holistic. It, it expands your mind and your body for sure, but spiritually you are awakened. And so we are so grateful to be here on your 93rd birthday, Ms. Dunham. We do love you. Thank you for your love. Another member of the panel, Julie Robinson Belafonte, was a major Dunham dancer in the 1940s and 50s and interjects a reflection on the day's events here. I know Ms. Dun- I, I Dunham is tired. It's been a very long day. Uh, I just uh, want to say Ms. Dunham taught an extraordinary master class a little while ago. And uh, I, I don't want to talk about myself. I want to say one thing that I learned in class today, which is such a wonderful word. Uh, it's not a word. It's a concept that one should know your isness, mm. yeah. what you are. Mm. And uh, I'm going to be using that word and quoting her because I think it's profound. Mm. And maybe she can elaborate on that or whatever she wants to talk about. But uh, I'm going to hand the microphone right over to Miss Dunham. Thank you. Thank you. And now you are going to activate me. I will sit here and do my best to answer whatever you'd like to know about me and these wonderful people who are here with me will speak up. If I'm wrong, they'll correct me. If I'm right, they'll second me. And uh, here we are. We're in... We're in a conference, we're in a a kind of a a meeting where we all have to find out about each other, find out about each other, about uh, ourselves, about me, about you. Let's get into it, shall we? (laughs) I do first want to recognize the presence of Mr. Walter Nix. Could you please stand here? Also, Mr. Joe Nash, who's sitting in the back, yes, historian. Uh, questions for Ms. Dunham. Please stand. Uh, Ms. Dunham, how is it like dancing against racism? How is it like dancing against racism? It was at sometimes uh, not easy at all. But let me tell you something. If we be perfectly honest about it, It uh, it was a good thing. It gave me impetus. It aroused my adrenaline and uh, gave me a focal point that I might not have had had I been just one of those, you know, pale-faced, easygoing people. I always had something to fight for, and I thank uh, racism for that. I don't thank it for what it's done to some people that haven't been able to rise up and above it. But for those of us who've been able to stand up and say, fuck you, we, uh, we made it. <laughs> Sorry. Well, you know, sometimes, <laughs> sometimes there are no words accepting the word. <laughs> Any other questions, please? Yes, let's move on. All right. (laughs) Any other questions? Of course, we're here for questions. I'm not here to lead. I'm here to follow. Uh, 
my name is Ken Sanger, and I would like, if I could, take two seconds to share a story uh, which happened to me in 1962. Uh, I, I was living in the Chelsea section of New York, recently moved there, and went to a place called the Hudson Guild, which was a uh, guild house, uh, and a group of kids came together of all colors. It was in the middle of the civil rights movement. It was a very interesting time for white students with all black neighborhood, and a very interesting group formed. And after a year or two of getting to know each other in a, in a way that we became close friends, we decided we wanted to do something special. And we put together a group to go south, to visit colleges and schools to talk. And Catherine Dunn sponsored us. If it wasn't for her, it would have never happened. And to, the, and to this moment, it is still one of the most meaningful things of my life, and I'm sure of all the other kids that went on that group, because she arranged for us. We went to Howard University, we went to North Carolina A&T, and then we went uh, to Washington and Lee University, which was an all-white school where blacks had never been allowed on the campus except in a working capacity. And we were up till midnight having an unbelievable session, and as the story goes, according to the local newspaper, the local theater, movie theater was integrated a month later. These things wouldn't have happened if it wasn't for Catherine Dunn having the impact. Uh, and I just want to stand up and say thank you so much. Well, I want to thank you for what you did for me. Because you were among those early groups of people who stepped forth and gave me a feeling this is something to fight for. These are people who will be with me. And you were with me, you are with me. I, I cannot thank enough those people who had the courage to do. Because it was your doingness gave me my isness. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Another question, please. Um, in, 1970, in 1969, I was in Haiti and I lived in your villa. It was somewhere else in the world. And um, and I would love it, it was it was very beautiful, and I would love for you to uh, talk about a little bit of your your time in Haiti. And I'm also curious, when did you leave and do you go back to Haiti? And if you could talk about the work you did there. Haiti has been, uh, I guess, my second home, my country, and has so much of deep, honest love for me and I for it that uh, Haiti will always be there no matter what happens. There are not good things happening in Haiti now. I might as well. We know that. We all know it. But we know that Haiti is strong and I, my hope is that it will survive what is happening now. But when I went there, my first thought was to know the people. That was 1934, 35 to know the people, what they were all about, and to love them, and they loved me. And after that, year after year after year, I went back and finally settled on a place that's called Habitation Leclerc. It's where Pauline Leclerc settled, and that's where you, you stayed. I'd like to feel that, I'd like to feel that, that I can be well, comfortable, 
creative. All of these things in Haiti, I don't feel it today. I don't feel it because there are those who have decided to live by uh, greed, um, striving for power and more power, and uh, forgetting that, that fundamental basic love that this country has. These people are slowly eating away at the core, not at the uh, external, but at the core. And this, is, this troubles me. I want to feel that Haiti is as I knew Haiti. Then I say, why should it be? No place is. No place. And uh, we look around the world and we see what's happening and we expect something to happen in Haiti that, that we don't particularly like. The, uh, the people are poorer. The rich are richer. But look, that's true of the entire world. People are poorer and the rich are richer. So all I can do in Haiti is say that I love it. I loved it then. I love it now. Uh, I am not sure how much good I would do by going back there. And that's what keeps me from, from going back. I will, of course, go back, but I don't know that I am the person who would have the strength to be able to adjust to the negative influences in Haiti. I have to get that strength from outside. I have to get it from you. You have to give me enough strength and enough willpower so that when I go back, I will be able to help. If I went back today, I don't think I would help. I know what you mean about its beauty, about the loveliness, about Leclerc, where Pauline Bonaparte lived. But uh, let us be realistic. Today, Haiti, represents a power base. Look, this power base could be used in a very positive way. Haiti is the key, the entranceway to the Caribbean, whole Caribbean complex, which leads into South America. Haiti has great importance as a, a guiding spirit for this area but also as, uh, uh, also as a preventive of destruction. And that's where I don't agree with Haiti today. I do not feel that Haiti is living up to its potential as uh, a gateway to positive things in the Caribbean and South America. It is leading to me, it is leading up to an obstruction to development. I don't like to say it, but I feel it's true. And uh, I am willing to do everything in my power to keep Haiti from living and leading a destructive life. I hope that you will, because you've known it at other times, will be among those that will join me in this, in this struggle. It's a real struggle.
Any other questions? Good afternoon. My name is uh, Reagan. I live in Sheffield. I, I'm up here out, out here. In uh, the excerpt the other night at the gala, and um, Julie spoke of it, you were you gave a concert in, I can't remember the city, and you said that uh, you would not return there and so people like you could sit and watch the show with people uh, like you. Now, following up on that, could you just take us through and let us know where you saw the first evidence that uh, those feelings had changed and you went back to the city that city or town that you did not plan on going back to? Can you recall any of that? <clears throat> Let me say this to you. I cannot tell you uh, from where the change will come. I can't tell you what it will be. I can only say that I know and feel within me that Haiti is itself strong enough to bring about a change. I feel that there will be a change for positive things. If you say, what do we want, those of us who know and love Haiti, what do we want? We want economic and social well-being. People to feel that they can earn a living. They can enter the world of trade, the economics of the rest of the world. That they can live well, that they can live well socially. That is, that this whole thing of mulatto versus black or white versus black and so forth and so on. The thing that is racism, which is there, it's incipient, but it's there, that we get rid of this. We start thinking of people as people. What more can I say to you than that I am quite prepared to devote what remains to me of life to assisting the growth of man wherever man needs assistance. I don't say just Haiti. I don't say just, you know, the United States or wherever. But all over the world, man needs help to become man. I am willing to devote myself to that in every way possible. And uh, Haiti is only a part of this whole complex that is me. And uh, could you reiterate your question again, sir, please? I think I know what he means. I know. Okay. I know. Uh, yes, I was. I didn't know how segregated it was. I didn't know to what extent the racism went. I found myself on one occasion, I know you've heard about it, the occasion when I was in Lexington, Kentucky, and uh, the audience was totally segregated. I did not, foolishly, I didn't think about it because I was so busy with the company, and that has saved me so many, many times. I was just, just too busy to, to get into what I considered the small things. This turned out to be a big thing. It turned out that no black people could sit in the uh, orchestra seats. And I, after going through a whole lot of, a whole lot of Resistance, threats, 
you name it. I did everything possible to be able to get on that stage and feel good about it. And I couldn't, I couldn't win them. Therefore, I decided if I couldn't win at the beginning, I'd win at the end. I did the show. They loved it. Maybe the show was better than it had ever been because everybody was uptight. And uh, in the end, I told them we would never come back until we could appear before people who were sitting next to each other. People of my color were sitting next to people of your color. Uh, a lot of people in the audience didn't know it. They had no idea that this was the case. And this is one thing I have to say, you have to be very, very careful about racism. There is conscious, active, violent racism. There's a kind of racism that is simply pure ignorance. People just don't know. And they don't know and they don't think and they follow. And all of a sudden they're faced with something which is against their Christian principles, social values, everything. But they did not know that until it was put before them. That night I decided to put this before them. Pinned on the back of my one of my fancy little, little uh, skirts. Uh, no whites allowed. Which was sort of a rude thing to do, I know. But I was so upset. And I said at the end, you know, until we could sit next, next to you, I wouldn't come back. And then after that, uh, they got to thinking about it, and they said, well, we want Paul Robeson, we want Marian Anderson, so we better get ourselves together. And they got themselves together, and they sat next to each other, and none of it rubbed off, so they were very happy. Do you think that finally, finally, there is no racism in dance today, or is it finally still remnants? To be perfectly honest, and that's my purpose tonight, I do not think that racism has uh, stopped rearing its ugly head in this country. It's here. Uh, we may not recognize it, some people, and I don't mean we, I mean you may not recognize it, but it's here. Now, why? It's here because of this whole need for control and power control that is the way of life of this, these United States. We want power. Just stop and think about it. Think about what's taught in our classes in school, the kind of things that are taught. Think about our recreation, what we love, what television tells us to love and television tells us to hate, and this, that. We are in the control of power control. We simply believe that we have the right to have everything that we feel that we want to have. And what tells us what we want to have? Think about it. We want to have that kind of shoes, this kind of um, drink, that kind of food, this kind of underwear, that kind of love life. Look at it. I'm telling you. Think about it. 
And you'll see that we are being told what to want and what not to want, what to love, what not to love, what to believe in, what not to believe in. This is our life today. Now this way of thinking is totally opposed to what man is supposed to be about. If you look back, and I am now in my middle stage of my life, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry to disappoint you. I am thinking in terms of what used to be. All right, we will grant that that family is not able to support family in today's life. We know that. Your kids wake up in the morning and go to school. They're out of the house. They're out of your sight. You don't know what they're doing. I was almost said control, but I don't mean it. <laughs> out of your sight, you don't know what they're doing. They come back home. See what I mean? The family has very little meaning today in our society. The village, which I'm looking at now with great interest, has, uh, is beginning to lose its meaning altogether. You know, there's hardly any villages. There are a lot of villages. They've lost their meaning and their value, but what we do have is these great urban centers, cities. We have cities, we have power control, we have corporations, we have curriculums that are dictated to who tells this principle of a school what this class will study at nine o'clock this morning. Think over. Who tells them? Corporations. What makes a corporation? A corporation is made up of people who didn't know how to get to the top any other way excepting to walk on the shoulders of those below them. They've got to get to the top. The top of what? The top of control, the top of power. Now you know how I feel about corporations. <laughs> this is what our lives are made up of. What do our children study in school? Do they learn what you want them to learn? Do they learn the beauties of this or that path or the other path or how this might be better for them than that might be? How to be happy? Do they learn how to be happy? No. They learn how to cut, splice, fit, sew, hammer, nail, do, do. Am I right? Yes. And this is the way we live. There was a question. Someone asked me a question. <laughs> the question was, is there still racism in dance? I know about it. She was speaking specific, but, but specifically it, about, about dance. dance. Yes. I would say that dance is as influenced by the media as uh, as anything else. I'd say that if you enjoy seeing a program of XYZ, it's because somebody told you this is what you should like to see. How much of what you want to see, know and love, and how much of what moves you do you see and is available for you to see? Now, you might go to some little off-Broadway something or see some little... There are people struggling, really, really struggling to show what they feel man needs 
but they can hardly make it. It costs a lot to live today. And in order to do, we have to live. If you're going to walk across the street, you have to have the strength with which to walk across the street, right? If you're going to do a dance program, you have to be able to pay rehearsal time, union fees for rehearsal, performance fees, costume fees, lighting, stage management, stage equipment, tickets. I could go right on. You know, this is what you need to do if you want to show what you're doing today. So what do you do? You're a creative artist. Oh, I want to show what it's like to feel, to be in love, we'll say. So you get busy and you start at it. By the time you get through, what you show is what they want to see, not what you want to show. Do you realize that? Well, that's what's happening. There's not much that we can do about it excepting be aware. If you want to show love between a 16-year-old and an 18-year-old, we'll say, it's got to be that he's 18, she's 16. Don't forget that. It's got to be that he's a he and she's a she. And to be perfectly honest, it's got to be that they're the same color. So you ask me about racism, and I say, where do you find uh, consensual love of, uh, between people of different color? Very seldom. If you do, it creates a scandal. It creates a whole mess of things that have to be lived down, lived through. You can show it in the tiny little off-Broadway stage and after you do whatever you accomplished, absolutely nothing, because you've only managed to pay for the cost of putting it on and so forth. And in the end, what is it? These two people stand there, a black woman and a white man, usually, as it's been since the old plantation days. And uh, now and then you find a white woman and a black man because he's supposed to be so powerful. Now, these two people, where are they going to live? Racism. I don't know where they'll find an apartment that will willingly take them in that is not geared toward the eccentric, the exotic. All right, maybe they'll find a place in... Uh, Oh, say down, downtown New York, where a lot of we'll call the mixed couples live. Maybe they'll find a place there to live. Maybe uh, can they walk into here and say, "Listen, I need a three-room apartment, and here's the money for six months." No, they can't do it. Uh, there are growing efforts to make life possible for what we call mixed couples. They're very, and the fact that they need to even be thought about answers your question. Every question you have, yes, racism is alive and well in these United States of America. That's it for this episode of Pillow Voices. Thank you for joining us today. On behalf of Jacob Spillow, we look forward to sharing more dance with you through the films, essays, and podcasts at danceinteractive.jacobspillow.org, and of course, through live experiences during our festival and throughout the year. 
Special thanks to the National Endowment for the Arts for helping launch this podcast series. Please subscribe to Pillow Voices wherever you get your podcasts and visit us again soon, either online or on site. <laughs>